Prodigal is kind of a funny word. That's a, it's a word that never actually shows up in this story from Luke's gospel, although for several hundred years now, Christians have referred to this story as the parable of the prodigal son. That's a title that St. Jerome came up with in like 347 AD or something like that. So it goes back a ways. Um, but the word prodigal doesn't actually show up in the story, which is a great story, right? It's a fabulous story. It's famous, uh, well-known, so well-known that this story has single-handedly redefined that English word prodigal, which originally was a word that referred to somebody who was overly generous, somebody who who wasted resources. Perhaps the original meaning of the term the prodigal son was the son who spent it all, the son who squandered everything. It was not necessarily a pejorative word, actually. Prodigal could be just another synonym for generous living, lavish, abundant uh, gestures. Nature, according to the ancients, was prodigal in her spring beauty. On a day like today, we might well agree with that. Nature is prodigal with her spring beauty, especially in this magnolia tree right out here. A generous king could be prodigal in his tax relief. But for English speakers, hearing this story, the famous story of the prodigal son, that's a word that now colloquially refers to the, like, the loose living kid who comes back home with his tail between his legs. That's what we think prodigal means. That's actually how Merriam-Webster now defines it. Prodigal, according to Merriam-Webster, has come to refer to a man or boy who has left his family in order to do something that the family disapproves of and has now returned home feeling sorry for what he has done. Prodigal no longer refers to generosity. Prodigal refers to repentance and turning from your wicked ways. And that's a story we love to tell, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't love a story about a, a repentant sinner? For thousands of years, Christians have, have focused on that moment in the story, right? The moment where Luke says the younger son comes to his senses, comes to himself, and find, we find it dramatically satisfying when this younger son hits rock bottom and is sitting there on the barn on the floor with the pigs realizing I've got to turn this thing around, right? It's a story that, that tends to be preached as the paragon example of repentance, what it means to repent and turn from your wicked ways. That's probably why our lectionary schedules it during the repentant season of Lent. It's a story with a very familiar dramatic arc, this second half reversal uh, this beautiful conversion story. It's almost like, like a 12-step story when it's preached this way, right? The kid wakes up from his drunken stupor to the sober realization that he is powerless over his addictions and that his life has become unmanageable. And he stumbles home to the father he abandoned and mistreated, ready to throw himself on dad's mercy and beg for forgiveness. But the way, the way that Luke actually tells this story the younger son never really gets the chance to play prodigal in the colloquial sense. The father sees the son coming while he's still quite a far, quite a far piece off before the son is anywhere near the house. And before the son apologizes, the father has embraced him and taken him into his arms. The father in the story does not care whether or not the son has hit rock bottom. He doesn't care whether the son has seen the error of his ways and has sufficiently repented. You have to really dig, actually, in this story to find real repentance. One way of reading the story, it's a much more Jewish way of reading it, is that the youngest son is actually pretty devious and crafty right up to the end. He is willing to say whatever he needs to say in order to get what he wants. Um, he knows his scripture really well, and he knows how to use his scripture to manipulate the father into giving him the thing that he wants. And that does not matter to the father. 
right? All that the father cares about is that this son, whom he never thought he'd see again, has come home. There is actually only one story in this, one character in this story who really exemplifies the original meaning of the word prodigal. Only, only one character who is so lavish and extravagant and profligate and even wasteful with his love and forgiveness that it scandalizes everybody in the community. This is not a story about a prodigal son. This is a story about a prodigal father. And the point, as Jesus seems to be suggesting to these religious leaders who have gathered around him to hear it, scandalized that Jesus is hanging out with, you know, the first century equivalent of prostitutes and drug dealers on the street corner, right? The point is that God doesn't care about repentance, at least not the repentance of the profligate and the wasteful. God is not looking for repentance from any younger son. God does seem to be interested in the repentance of the older son. The father in this story doesn't care about following the rules. He doesn't care how his son has spent the inheritance, whether it was gambling or prostitution or an inordinate love of bacon, hanging out with the pigs. The prodigal father is prodigal with love, which is to say he is prodigal with a love that is weird and messy and uncomfortable and enabling. There is scandal in this story, but it's not the wastrel behavior of the younger son. It's the profligate love of this father who forgives all the bad behavior at the expense of community moral standards and maybe at the expense of the younger son's like, ability to live an live a upstanding life. The father in Jesus' parable does not give two figs about his son's lifestyle choices. The father only cares whether or not you make it back home at the end of the day. The Roman Catholic poet and priest Frederick Faber wrote this, this hymn that we just sang, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. 1854, I think, was when this was penned. There's a wideness in God's mercy, he wrote, like the wideness of the sea. There's a, a kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty. My favorite bulletin typo came at the expense of this hymn a few years ago. We accidentally, in the first version of the, of the bulletins that Sunday, we, uh, instead of printing the conventional title of this hymn, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, we had printed There's a Wilderness in God's Mercy. Uh, we, we caught the title before it went to press and, you know, fixed it, but I've always kind of wished that we'd kept it in there because there is a wilderness in God's mercy, as this story, I think, exemplifies beautifully. There's a dangerous quality to God's forgiveness. There's a scandal in God's justice. And the scandal is that the one who does everything right is forgotten in the fields while the ne'er-do-well is celebrated. This is, the, this is the great theme of Hebrew scripture, right? As Jesus' original hearers would have recognized, you begin a story in the first century with the words, there was a man who had two sons, and every good Jewish listener knows exactly where that story is likely to go, right? Genesis tells this story over and over. Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers. The, young, the, the familiar trope of Hebrew scripture is a father who always favors his youngest child with no other good reason than the father just seems to like the youngest son the best, right? I mean, there's no justice there. There's no fairness. The great scandal of the biblical narratives is that God actually does play favorites, and God's favor has nothing to do with our behavior. If the Old Testament is any indication, God kind of has a thing for redheads, and God kind of seems to like younger siblings best. As the older brother of a ginger-haired sister, I feel this favoritism <laughs> rather personally. Uh, my sister loves it uh, and loves to cast it out, but I don't love it. 
So the parable that I need to hear is actually has nothing to do with a wastrel son and a prodigal father. The parable that I need to hear, the parable that rings a bell for me, is the second story that Jesus tells, which is maybe the primary narrative he's telling when we remember Luke's framing, right? That Jesus is talking not to a hillside of wastrels, but to a group of upstanding eldest sons. And standing in the pulpit of this cathedral, I have a feeling that I am addressing a room full of upstanding eldest sons and daughters. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling, Luke says. They're saying things like, this kid is welcoming sinners, he's eating with them. They're scandalized, rightly so, right? Older brothers of the world unite. Jesus is a classic enabler. If he really wanted to help these people, he should be offering them some kind of job training or skills building. He should be offering them some means of turning their lives around. He should be staging interventions, not buying them beer. Tax collectors were notorious cheats in the first century. This is like a Jesus who is like hanging out with used car salesmen who are swindling their customers. He's hanging out with Ponzi schemers who are preying on widows. Jesus never calls them to repentance. I mean, we love the idea of a tolerant and forgiving God until we start thinking about the people God is actually hanging out with, and just about every time, it is not the people with whom I am hanging out. In fact, if this story is about anything at all, it's about a savior who has an unfortunate habit of cozying up with the very people I cannot stand, the people whose actions and behaviors are most abhorrent to me. Pick the politician who gets your goat, the radio talk show host who infuriates you, the relative on social media who posts the stuff that makes you fume, and then imagine Jesus like slapping his arm around that one, right? Hey, buddy, I like you the best. That's what prodigal means. The prodigal son in this story is not the jerk with the pigs. The prodigal son is Jesus, the son of a father so prodigal, so imprudent, so wasteful and enabling in his love that even the most execrable example of human behavior is given a free pass and welcomed home without any need to repent and be forgiven. There's a wilderness in God's mercy. And that wilderness makes me a little bit uncomfortable because, perhaps like you, I was brought up with some pretty clear standards, some pretty clear boundaries for what good behavior looks like. It is much more congenial to imagine myself as the younger son, right? I much prefer to identify with the misunderstood and maligned, the victims of circumstance and poor choices, the, uh, the affectionate, you know, ne'er-do-well who is nevertheless loved indiscriminately by a forgiving and merciful God. I'm cool with God's over-acceptance as long as it applies to me and to my bad behavior, but I am the first one to stick my self-righteous hand in the air and call out a dangerous tolerance for the, for the sins of other people's younger sons. Maybe especially a, a younger son, the fourth of fifth kids, whose words and actions put people I love in great danger. Because let's make no bones about it. The elder son in this story is entirely justified in his anger and his frustration. For all these years, he says to his father, I have been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed a single command, but when this son of yours comes back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him, you gave him a ring around his finger and a robe about his shoulders and put Dolce Gabbana sandals on his feet, you gave him a real estate empire full of schlocky gold toilets, you made him leader of the most powerful nation in the free world, and look how he's acting now smugly walking around like he owns the place. And the father's response is not to chide his eldest son for his self-righteousness. The father doesn't condemn the eldest for being judgy. 
I think the father knows that the eldest son has got a very good point. But being right, which the elder son is, he's very right, and that's not the point. The child says, my, the father says, my child, he uses an affectionate term, my child, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate, we had to rejoice because this brother of yours, this member of our family, this one who has a claim on your understanding and your affections, not because he's done anything to deserve it, not because he's appropriately repented and changed his ways, not because his behavior or his opinions or his actions are agreeable to you, this one belongs to me. He is mine and I love him. This brother of yours was dead and has come to life, and that is the only thing that matters. The father in this story does not think in categories of right and wrong. He thinks in categories of lost and found. The younger son has been found, and now the father is going after his other lost son, the one who is out there in the fields of righteousness, angry and refusing to come in to the banquet. And that's where Jesus ends the parable. We don't actually know how this thing comes out. Jesus leaves his listeners in this wilderness of dissonance, this wilderness of confusion and pain. I thought I was doing everything right. I thought I was doing everything you asked of me. And now you're pulling this reversal on me. Jesus leaves his readers with this oldest sibling who knows that he's right and also knows that he is lost because his rightness is going to be the thing that will keep him from coming home. Jesus didn't teach in parables in order to give his listeners tidy little moral lessons. He taught in parables because parables unsettle people. He taught in parables to invite his listeners into that space of confusion, which is the space of a wilderness, isn't it? This is a parable that is designed to scandalize us, and until we figure out a way to be scandalized by it, we're missing the point. God's mercy is not this like liberal claptrap thing about a progressive creator who accepts everybody exactly the way they are, right? God's mercy is a wilderness that takes my entire framework of the world and grabs it and captures it in a scandalous kind of reversal and grace. There's a verse of the, of the Frederick Faber hymn that didn't get set to music. He wrote seven or eight verses. We only sang three of them. Um, but it's my favorite verse, because in spite of the sort of treacly 19th century sentimentality, Frederick Faber gets, I think, the, the threat of the gospel uh, when he writes, Souls of men, why will ye scatter like a crowd of frightened sheep? Foolish hearts, why will ye wander from a love so true and deep? It is God. His love looks mighty, but is mightier than it seems. Tis our Father, and his fondness goes far out beyond our dreams. For we make, Faber says, we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify God's strictness with a zeal God will not own. Was there ever kinder shepherd, half so gentle, half so sweet, than this Savior who would have us come and gather? at his feet.